even if we were to stop emitting greenhouse gases today, it's going to continue for some time. However, if we take action, if we put the right politicians in the right place, the right administrators in the right place, we can save Windsor. Welcome to the Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. The Earth's coldest places are a hot mess. As a result of climate change, studies suggest that most ski areas in southern New England will be out of business by 2040. A recent climate assessment in Vermont says that the Vermont ski season will be shortened by up to a month. High elevation snowpacks in the western U.S. have decreased by nearly half in the last four decades. In the Alps, half of the glacial ice has vanished. All this matters because when snow and ice vanish, sea levels rise, ocean currents change, wildfires become more intense, and fresh water becomes scarce. Journalist Porter Fox has gone from traveling and skiing the world as a former editor of Powder Magazine to journeying through frozen lands, chronicling the alarming impacts of climate change. His new book is The Last Winter, The Scientists, Adventurers, Journeymen, and Mavericks Trying to Save the World. I began by asking Fox where he developed his love for frozen places. You know, it wasn't totally mine by choice in the beginning. I, we moved to, uh, from upstate New York to northern Maine when I was around three years old. And uh, it was a, a fairly drastic change uh, from a relatively temperate zone for most of the year um, to winter about six to eight months of the year, back then anyway. Um, and we were down east, we were right on the water, super violent nor'easters, major blizzards, um, and, and always, especially when we went inland in the winter, we'd always see some minus 20, minus 30 degree days, you know, midwinter um, that were, it was actually, you know, you, you're probably familiar with this, when it gets that cold, it's often quite dry and, and it, it's, it's just a magical realm. It's, it's not, it doesn't even feel that cold. Everything is frozen. The water vapor in the air is frozen and kind of hovering at night. You can see the moonlight lighting it up. You can see um, this beautiful blue hue coming off the snow and, and ice. And I think from a pretty young age, it, it was just a, a magical kind of, fairy tale time of the year and throw in a few snow days when we didn't have to go to school. And I very quickly fell in love with winter. Your career took you to uh, want to pursue your love of skiing, which ultimately led you to powder magazine. Uh, where does skiing come in to enter your, your life story here? Well, like in most of new England, there's not, a whole lot to do in the winter other than skate and ski. Now folks snowshoe, I guess, um, you know, there wasn't even cable TV back then. It, it was just total boredom or we would go out cross country ski a bit, but then we started going to um, big squaw up in Northern Maine by Greenville and then eventually Sugarloaf. And um, when I was super young, I think a lot of kids do this. I hope I really hated skiing. <laughs> you know, it's uncomfortable. And, and our, my mom tells me that I just complained all the time. And, 
but I do, as a, my my child now does every time I take her skiing. But but then all of a sudden you you go off on your own and you're allowed to ski with your friends and then you start to really feel the arc of a turn and and start to learn how to make your edge bite and accelerate through the turn. That that crazy feeling of really as close to flying I think as we can get, uh, especially when when you're in powder, which I didn't do till much later. Uh, but once that happened, I, I was just completely hooked and watched all the ski movies and did all the silly exercises in the back of ski magazine to try to get ready for the season. And, you know, spent as many weekends um, up at Sugarloaf in high school as I, as I possibly could. So uh, years working for Powder Magazine, traveling the world, skiing, uh, has led you to a, a different kind of adventure in your new book, uh, The Last Winter. What inspired you to write The Last Winter? You know, it, it, it goes way back to when I was living in Jackson Hole and I moved there to ski and be a ski bum. We were skiing over 100 days a year and I worked at the local newspaper. I had a similar passion for writing and wanted to learn how to write and I had absolutely no idea what I was doing then. My first stories for that poor little newspaper were, were quite, pretty rough, um, but they just went hand in hand. And I found that I could, you know, like they say, write about what you know, and I knew about skiing and got some stories published at Powder. And then at Powder, I wanted to branch out a bit more and started looking for some stories with a little more teeth to them and ultimately ended up writing about climate change and, and how snow, this snow that we'd been documenting at the magazine um, for many, many years was starting to disappear. The snow line was moving up very clearly. I, I remember being in Bolivia on an expedition to um, uh, ski this mountain range that was uh, kind of southeast of La Paz. And we were hiking up and you could see from the top of this ridgeline about 16, 17,000 feet off to the north was um, the Amazon basin, this big lush green jungle. And, and I remember this, these columns of steam shooting up off of the peaks. And it was just so hot on that side of the mountain range. We still had the glaciers on our side. And when we got to the bottom, one of the local farmers, um, I think he had actually provided us with a goat to cook for a, a big feast at, at base camp, told us that his whole village had moved. The glacier had receded so far that there was no longer water for their crops and water to drink. And they just picked everything up and, you know, just moved it. Mm -hmm. And that was happening all through the Andes, um, you know, in Peru. And I was skiing in the Cordillera Blanca uh, a couple of years before uh, they're having these glacial outburst uh, flood events that were happening as this massive kind of unprecedented melt would build up in this ice dam. And then when the ice dam released, it released all that water and the surprise delusion would take entire villages out. Um, so, you know, just through that, that was that was in the late nineties. And, and so this interface between snow, ice and climate change was still pretty new. Um, and after researching it a bit, I, I started to write about it and um, it was really, it really took until this book to do a deep dive into these planetary repercussions of melting snow and ice, not, not just losing skiing, but 
we're talking about, you know, drinking water availability for 2 billion people and things like that. So as you try to wrap your mind around, you know, chronicling the cryosphere, that area, that part of the world that is frozen, uh, where did you go first as you began this journey for the last winter? Um, the first trip was out to the North Cascades. Uh, I mentioned in the book that um, all three books that I've written have either started or ended in the North Cascades, and I have absolutely no idea why. I'm not from there. Uh, I have some friends there, but don't really see them when I go on these reporting trips. But it's a, it is a, a weird confluence of energy and geology and season, and, and there's so much moisture in the Pacific Northwest that there's just a lot happening there. You know, it it's, uh, gets historic snowfall. Some of the greatest floods in the geological history of North America happened there as the ice age melted and these even larger ice dams broke and all of Eastern Washington was flooded with these deluges going like 50 miles an hour, you know? It's just a really fascinating spot. And there was a another confluence there of, um, a very uh, quickly diminished, uh, diminishing snowpack. Uh, the Pacific Northwest and the Sierras are, are seeing their snowpacks go a lot faster than the rest of the country. And the spike in wildfires that was taking out entire towns. And so this town of Twisp that had a really classic uh, small time town owned and run ski area that we had written about in powder before also had this um, terrible fire, the Carlton Complex, which at the time was the largest fire in the state of Washington's history, which is saying a lot, um, were all happening at the same time. The snow was melting, the fires were taking out entire towns in the region. And I read some studies uh, in, during my research that pointed to this correlation between the diminished snowpack and wildfires. And here was one of the first major global impacts of uh, melting snow that I was not aware of, um, that it is now one of the primary drivers of this spike in wildfires in the West and how many of those major fires are starting in Alpine regions where there used to be snow in the spring, a strong uh, spring snowpack, and there is no more. And that, that slow um, release of water that a snowpack gives entire regions, the whole West, you know, an entire state. Uh, when that's gone, the forest dries out extremely quickly and, and fires um, come pretty soon after. So that's, that's how it started. This summer and fall, we saw that same area in the North Cascades in Washington state, home to another mega fire. Um, so this this they seem to now be doomed to this. I remember a friend of mine lives uh, just outside of Twisp and was documenting on Facebook each day his terror that his house was going to go up. And each day, me and many other of his older friends would be looking on Facebook to see what had happened to Paul. Um, and it, it's it's pretty terrifying. Um it's happening all over the West. I mean, it's really crazy how much is burning. You're talking, you know, in 2017, a million acres burns in Montana. The next year, 1.4 million acres burns in British Columbia and Canada. 
uh, 60% of all fires in the American West since 1950, 60% ignited in the last 20 years. And so, you know, when I was pitching this book to a publisher, um, the typical question that comes across is, oh, well, you know, who's going to be interested in this? What, who's going to remember these fires? Who's going to remember that we had a bad winter? And I just kept telling them, like, this is just the beginning of, of this progression. And well, the one thing you can count on is that this is going to keep happening again and again. And there's a certain momentum that we've put into the system where even if we were to stop um, emitting greenhouse gases today, it's going to continue for some time. However, if we take action, if we put the right politicians in the right place, the right administrators in the right place that have a, a deep knowledge of, of how to kind of back down and, and kind of slow down this warming, we can save winter. You know, we can save these water resources. We can save forests. So it was a real crux time to, to try and do this book. Why should, you know, for years we grow up hearing the North, the Arctic, the cryosphere uh, referred to as a frozen wasteland, you know, were terms like desolate and forgotten and inaccessible. Why should we care about this frozen part of the world that's uninhabitable by most humans? I mean, you know, talk to any skier, talk to any person who's traveled in those regions. And so personally, um, they are just so unique and so beautiful and, and so grand in scale. The, the Juneau ice field is one of the most incredible geological phenomena I've ever seen in my entire life. And, and so for that reason, um, they're important. Um, there are much more important reasons why we have to protect the cryosphere. Number one, it provides the primary source of drinking water to 2 billion people, you know? Number two, it is causing a spike in wildfires, not just in the US West, but in Siberia, in Northern Scandinavia, um, in Arctic Canada. Um, it is also containing a massive amount of greenhouse gases that are frozen into the Arctic permafrost, which circles the top of the planet. And if that were to thaw, uh, much of that methane and, and other really potent greenhouse gases will very possibly warm the planet many more times than humans ever did by burning coal and fossil fuels. That's frozen there. That's safe right now. If we can keep it frozen, we can avoid that kind of runaway climate change scenario. Um, it goes on and on. Sea level rise, two thirds of sea level rise comes from melting ice and snow. It's just like putting a handful of ice into a glass full of water. You keep putting it in, it's gonna overflow. So we're looking at you know up to three feet of sea level rise this century, some say up to seven or eight. I mean, you know, my old hometown of New York City is underwater after 18 inches. Mm -hmm. um, so these are the reasons why right now, this 10,000 year relatively stable climate that we have enjoyed and, and human civilization has blossomed in is very rare. And it is 
right in the middle of this perfect balance of frozen terrain, frozen uh, water on land, and the oceans kind of at the level that they're at, and all of the meteorological um, events that happen because of that perfect balance. Once that ice starts to go and like really starts to go, blocking major ocean currents, potentially sending Europe into a thousand year ice age, um, really crazy putting a, a, taking the drought that's in the West and extending it for three, 400 years, you know, that happens because of us moving that balance, that natural balance that had been kind of set, situated, and sure, was slowly changing by natural uh, reasons, but a slow change allows adaptation. You know, a slow change allows us to shift and, you know, kind of like meet it at every corner. However, with this infusion of, of um, heat onto the planet um, as a result of insulating greenhouse gases, we don't have time for that. Um, so that's a you, long answer to the question. But. So you write about um, having an up-close view of the speed and ferocity of the melting cryosphere when you went to Greenland. Give us an example of what you saw there. It's really what I saw was a lot of locals telling me the way it used to be, a, a massive fjord next to um, the outpost. We were in Kulasuk, which is on the southeast uh, coast of the island, a pretty remote part of Greenland. And, you know, in Kulasuk, they used to go across this fjord. They used to ice fish on it. They used to hunt um, seals, walrus. Believe it or not, they hunt sharks from the ice. Um, these people are fearless and like so badass between you and me. They're so um, uh, accustomed to just living out on the ice. And, you know, as a skier and kind of snow person, I really idolize them a lot. But, you know, that was the first thing. There's, there's a glacier there um, that's moving so fast that you can just watch it move underfoot. You can just stand there off the glacier and watch it pass you by, uh, just dumping billions of tons of ice um, into the ocean. I mean, the, the, the ice sheet in Greenland is two miles thick. You know, you have million year old snow and ice at the very bottom of that ice sheet that they can mine and, and you know, gather data from to see what the atmosphere is like then. Um, so it's, you know, 5.5 million square mile Antarctic ice sheet, you know, is similarly thick and vast and goes forever. But they're losing ice so fast that Greenland's losing, you know, the equivalent of an Olympic swimming pool of ice every second. That was in the mid 1990s. They redid the study in 2020 and found that number had increased ninefold to 230 billions of ice a year, you know, mm -hmm. nine times uh, in you're looking at, you know, close to 30 years. Um, if it continues to accelerate melting at that rate, which it likely will, because now it's melting from beneath. Now the water is percolating down through it. You know, you're sort of penetrating this giant ice cube with melt tubes, and uh, it, it is accelerating that rate really fast. So you're, you know, you melt, you melt Greenland, and, and sea levels go up 23 feet around the world, like just like that. I mean, Greenland is is the sort of linchpin to what our future looks like, um, and they're already trying um, geoengineering techniques like. 
in Antarctica, they're using these glass beads to try to refract light and protect the ice there so it doesn't fall apart and calve into the sea. What do you I mean? What are they doing with glass beads? They, they spread it across the surface of the snow. So the the um, uh, instead of melting the snow, that, that bead protects, uh, basically creates a layer of protection that refracts that solar radiation out and away, and it doesn't melt the snow. You know, it keeps it cool. And you've seen the blankets in Europe that they're putting over glaciers, the tops of the peaks. They'll put these massive, massive plastic white, almost like a Tyvek material uh, blankets to um, protect the glaciers. Of course, the situation in Europe is a little more complicated where many of those peaks are held together by permafrost and the glaciers are keeping the permafrost cold. So if the glacier were to melt and the permafrost melts, literally, the top thousand feet of the mountain starts to peel off and fall apart, which has already started happening in places where they're not covered. So it's, it's taking many different shapes all over the world. Each, each continent kind of has its snow and ice issue, but at the end of the day, you know, we, we all feel the effects. You went on a ski trip in the Italian mountains, the Dolomites. Um, What did you see there? And what did, uh, yeah, what did you find? Well, it's this is the Southern Alps, so it was obviously very warm. There was one glacier left in the entire range, the Marmolada, and the Marmolada is an incredibly famous um, glacier where you know you can see it from the streets of Venice for thousands of years. Civilization there has been able to look up and see this great white apron of snow and ice and. You know, I learned how Leonardo da Vinci used to sketch glaciers and ice and, and um, even use them as studies for the background of the Mona Lisa and was fascinated with how ice and snow melt and how water falls down the mountain in a certain way. Um, and we were there to you know, look at this ancient Latin culture, which is one of the oldest mountain cultures in the world, so that I could write about how did humanity learn to live on the snow? You know, in the old days, if you went up into the high peaks, you were probably going to die. You were going to die of a cold or in a crevasse or, um, you know, just a fall or something like that. And the peaks were always um, in, in ancient texts and even, even the leather book covers of the Habsburg Empire were embossed with, uh, you know, the peaks had demons wrapped around them and dragons flying out of them. And you you really were meant to stay away at all costs. And, and then this this culture in, in, um, in Italy, in Northern Italy, just starts living there, building villages and expanding around these Alpine valleys. And so I learned about their architecture, how they built homes with a large south-facing walls to absorb that solar energy and built these beautiful giant round ceramic um, encasings around their wood stoves to heat three, four, five rooms all at the same time. Um, the ceramic would spread the heat like that. Everything from their diet to, you know, buttonholes and buttons and winter garb that even some of which we wear today um, as out of necessity. Uh, and then, of course, skiing came and, and um, that whole winter tourism uh, movement, you know, really got a foothold there, became the Alps that, that we know today. Uh, you saw evidence of the retreat of the glaciers in as you skied in Europe, and Europe is probably one of the, well, it's certainly the most visible and accessible where we see this glacial recession. What did you see 
in the Dolomites that was different than things you've seen there on past trips? You know, past trips of the Dolomites, and I was there 10 years ago, is the marmalada is just melting so fast. There's just a little piece of it left. I mean, this used to be a massive, massive glacier. Um, And there's just a little chunk of it left. When you're in Chamonix, you know, if you ever ski the Valley Blanche, probably the most famous backcountry run in the Alps, you're skiing down the Mer de Glace Glacier that... um, you know, that Shelley wrote about that, you know, all all the poets like to reference and whatnot and skiers have skied forever back to town and you can't ski back to town anymore because it's melted so far, so far back and lost so much thickness that, you know, the, the town of Chamonix keeps building chairlifts not to get up the mountain, but to actually get down the mountain from where the bottom of the glacier is now. Mm. Um, it's so obvious. It's really rattling to see, um, to see that one. Uh, it's, it's in, has much more length than the uh, Marmalada, but it's also way North of there. Um, so that's partly why. And throughout the rest of the region, you you know, Austria's glaciers are much lower, um, but Austria, the percentage of their GDP that the ski industry accounts for is massive. Um, but they're going to lose their snow first and they're going to lose their, their slopes first. Germany's next. Um, France and Switzerland have relatively high elevation glaciers, so they'll hold out for a while. But already, you know, Europe has lost half of its glacial ice since the 1800s, half of it. <laughs> and, and if you've ever been there, you know that that's, that's a lot of snow. Yeah. And I've skied that Valley Blanche all the way into town. So that's amazing to think that that. Yeah. In that sort of, uh, you know, incredibly memorable ski tour now ends somewhere higher up yeah. on the mountain. Well, the memorable sketchy entrance from the top is still there. So you can go relive that if you want. <laughs> it's terrifying. Porter, you've done this succession of books about journeys. Northland, as you followed a latitude line across America, and now this, the last winter, is there a connection for you in these journeys? Absolutely. And and I have to admit, I always look for a journey when I'm looking for a story idea. I'm such a fan of John McPhee, of Ian Frazier, of these terrific narrative nonfiction writers that combine character um, setting set pieces and uh, either deep history or science um, to to give context to a a very cerebral kind of big picture story. And I'm just such a fan that I wanted to do it. I also came into this game doing a lot of travel writing and really learning how to uh, use detail to to create an ambiance, to kind of create a a scene Um, and and realizing that just writing uh, uh, as a journalist, writing about science or history is, you know, after about three paragraphs, it's a total bore, (laughs) you know, for most people and even myself included. And, And so when you, when you mix it in and you get these really, interesting characters, which any writer stumbles across, um, you mix it all together, you kind of get this um, little potpourri of um, learning about a new place, about hopefully feeling some connection to um, any of the various characters. 
Um, and then really learning something about how this planet works and sort of what is happening in, in our society and, and in our world. Introduce us to a character who you uh, think is especially memorable in The Last Winter. Oh, my God, there's so many. I mean, I have to start with Bird, who was a, a professional skier that um, was a friend of a friend who was going to be my guide in the North Cascades, was my guide. Um, and uh, turns out our, our stories kind of intertwine. You'll, you'll read in the book. Um, and uh, it was just a, a fascinating person who uh, sort of talks in bird talk. He likes to use bird uh, euphemisms and, and bird uh, is his and nickname acronyms. and bird is his nickname, although you wouldn't know it. I'm not sure who knows his actual first name, um, but he was a real mountain person and, and an unbelievable skier who, as we drove through the Cascades was just pointing out these lines that he had skied um, down Liberty Bell, many lines down Washington Pass that were, I mean, death-defying. Um, if you remember on the entrance to the Valley Blanche, you walk off the Guida Medi tram and you kind of bend around to the, to the right and the terrifying thing that you don't want to go down is to the left, which is this sheer sheet of ice. Um, Bird skied that has skied it many times and he skis it with a, a little tiny parachute that he keeps in his backpack. And when you get to the bottom of that North face of the Agui, there is a, about a thousand foot cliff and he stops, you know, 30 feet, 40 feet shy of the cliff, pulls out his little parachute and then just straight lines it off this cliff and pops the chute and ski. He just sails back to town. <laughs> it's like, it just makes me like, queasy to think about. Um, but he was really interesting. Um, I think some of the most interesting people I met were, were on the Juno Icefield at the Juno Icefield Research Program. And I spent um, a few days with about 80 students, um, administrators, teachers that were all cryosphere scientists. They were all studying the snow. They were all studying glaciers. I, half of them had just been in, in Antarctica or were about to go back. You know, they were digging, you know, they were drilling for, you know, ice that was hundreds of thousands of years, of years old. Um, they were testing uh, these drones that can fly around and take glacial mass balance measurements and decide whether a glacier is growing or retreating automatically. Um, so much cool stuff. Um, one, of, one of the scientists there was... Um, using a special camera to photograph and record bacteria living in the ice. And uh, little known fact, um, every ice formation chunk in the world has living organisms in it going back down to that million year old ice in Antarctica I was telling you about. And all of those bacteria also have a kind of time signature that can tell us about the ancient prehistoric past. Um, and they can also tell us about how life on earth was created. You know, they, it, it, it makes me wonder, you know, here we are living through a pandemic. Is it possible that as ice melts and reactivates or releases ancient bacteria that some past plague could come roaring out of this meltwater. Absolutely. And many of those potential viruses are already in laboratories in frozen form, 
being studied, um, testing their virality and other things. And, and it already happened in Siberia uh, where um, a deer carcass from it was centuries, I don't think it was thousands of years ago, but it was centuries ago, was uncovered and the kid discovered it. And there was an anthrax outbreak in this, uh, in this village. Um, and sadly, the kid died. Many were infected. Not everyone died. Um, but it all came from this melting ice pack that, you know, had really never revealed that layer of ice before. Hmm. Um, so there's many, many viruses, many, many bacteria, many uh, frozen carcasses and whatnot. Um, you know, ice preserves everything. And so it will be both interesting and, and a little scary to see kind of what comes out of the ice as, as it melts. They're, they're finding fossilized ancient octopus heads in the ice, you know. They're finding uh, meteorites, large meteorites that landed, uh, especially in Siberia. Um, you know, they're, they're finding these amazing things. And the a lot of the crew at the Juno Icefield Research Program either works with, for, or um, consults with the Mars Rover Program, which is creating an ice core drilling unit to go on the next rover going to Mars, and another rover that's being created to go to one of Jupiter's moons to drill the uh, drill ice cores there to look for signs of life and, and try to understand our solar system better. So now this summer. Uh, temperatures in Alaska reached 90 degrees in downtown Anchorage, uh, maybe for the first time. And you've written that the Juno, the Juno Icefield Research Program, that their base on the glacier is falling apart. What's happening? Uh, as the ice melts, the glacier starts to move in, in fast and erratic ways and um, basically sort of falling apart. So, you know, the, the ice field research program is, if, if it loses, it's built on the ice. When that ice starts to melt and shift, the buildings on it are going to melt and shift with it. And they're pretty ranch, ramshackle buildings to start with. They had to ski or fly in this material for the 18 camps they have across the ice field. I think only six or seven of which they actively use. Uh, but I saw the same thing in Greenland where... The scientists that I was consulting with, um, Dr. Coney Stefan had one of the first most important um, research camps there called Swiss Camp. And the crevasses were growing so quickly around it. It was swallowing sheds. It was taking down the foundational pylons. And, um, and it was making it very hard to land helicopters and travel around it. And very sadly, in the making of this book, um, Dr. Stefan fell into one of those crevasses and, and passed away. And, um, you know, it, it was this very bizarre, almost like metaphor of how climate change and, and melting ice is, is affecting humanity. Mm. Uh, I remember that story. He was, you know, a, a global leader in research in climate change and in, um, you know, in the work he was doing in Greenland. And oh, he's a great human. What a great guy! I was very lucky to spend an afternoon with him, and just such a lovely, lovely person. And, so, and every single scientist that I met was just so selfless and excited. Most of them were skiers, mm -hmm. not in the way that I was, perhaps, but like they were 
avid, avid winter people, and they just loved being out there on the ice. Now, just to connect this frozen world with the rest of the world, you write that it's the developing world that will feel the real pain of the melting cryosphere first. So we're talking about Africa, Asia, you know, tropical climates. Um, explain what you mean by that. So in terms of the cryosphere, there are two, two real effects that will hit the developing world extremely hard. The first is, is anyone living near a coastline. Um, you know, the sea levels are rising faster and faster. The estimates for sea level rise 30 years ago, they're, they're not accurate any longer. And I'm guessing that the estimates 30 years from now will be much more drastic than they are today. So you see a few inches of sea level rise. It makes a big difference on a plane that big. When you see a few feet and then you add on this increasing intensity of storms, hurricanes, typhoons, tropical cyclones of any kind, you know, and you get a storm surge on top of that, you know, look at, look at Superstorm Sandy in Manhattan. You know, they say if that storm had happened 30 years before, it wouldn't have flooded Manhattan. You know, it's that the timeline is that tight right now. And so, you know, in places like um, the Ganges River Delta, Bangladesh and um, the coast of China and, um, you know, all these regions where there's a massive dense population right along the coastline. If you see three feet of sea level rise, those people are dislocated, have to be relocated. And all of much of the land behind them is already populated as well. There's, there's really nowhere to go. Hmm. Um, and the second effect you'll see is this, this water supply issue where the glaciers on the Tibetan plateau, um, the snow, you know, it, I mean, this will affect the U.S. West drastically as well, where the snowfall in the, in the Rockies and the spring snowpacks there begins to diminish. In the Rockies, you're looking at 40 million people and half a dozen major cities in the U.S. West that depend on that snowmelt primarily, directly, exclusively for their water supply and don't have a backup plan right now. You know, over in, uh, in Asia, you're looking at cities like Shanghai, you know, cities like massive, massive population centers, the whole Ganges River corridor, the, the most dense human population on earth right there, um, seeing their rivers dry up. And again, no, no plan for replacement. So 2 billion people largely in the developing world will have major water scarcity issues, which is not just drinking water, it's also the water that they're growing their crops with, you know, how are you going to grow your crops if you can't irrigate them? So that's, that's sadly where you'll see a big hit in Europe where you see all this, you know, this melting where, you know, the, the Alps are warming almost three times faster than the global average. You're losing all this glacial ice. It is a wealthy continent that is doing these massive engineering projects to build dams above current dams to double and triple uh, hydropower productivity and try to save and protect the water or building dams around the foot of the current glaciers so that the solid ice glacier is ultimately replaced by a liquid reservoir, um, you know, building a dam from one mountain pass to another. Um, you know, they, they can afford to do that, but, but in parts of um, the developing world, they just don't have those resources. Your last trip uh, for the, uh, the last winter was uh, in Greenland. And as you were coming out of Greenland, 
Um, as far as you can tell, you may have been the last flight out of Greenland before flights and, and the world shut down due to COVID. And you wrote uh, that you marveled at the same repudiation of science that you'd seen from climate deniers for years. We're championed now by the same characters who were denying COVID. Um, talk about the connection between these worlds, your journeys into the frozen world and your journey back into the pandemic world and, and what you saw. Um, it, it was kind of terrifying. I mean, I was sitting on a, a unnamed pass in Greenland when my little satellite messenger that I used to keep in touch with my wife buzzed. And there was just one message, all caps, get home now. And I that didn't gets know. your attention. <laughs> yeah, I caught my attention. It could have been many different things. And, and I was, Except that you weren't a subway ride away. You were in Iceland. Exactly. It's a little complicated, honey. <laughs> in Iceland, at the end of a, a four-day dog sled journey with these Inuit seal hunters, you know, one way. And, and I, I was like, it's going to take us four days to get home. Luckily, it didn't. We got back to camp much faster. But at any rate, it, it was really... Um, Strange to see because you hear about, you know, all of us in the pandemic hear about the development of a vaccine and we hear about um, certain treats, treatments that are taking shape. And, and you, you start to hear that, you know, there's a light at the end of the tunnel. There, there's a way to end this. this. This isn't going to be the Black Plague that ended life as you know it in Europe. You know, this isn't going to be like that. Like we figured it out. And then to see you know, 30, 40% of the population decide that they're going to make up their own science and they're going to make up their own reasons to maintain essentially their worldview, do really anything to let their worldview from being rattled because that would be too close to, too close to the core or something and just not take the vaccine and convince others and spread misinformation so that they don't look like they're wrong, you know? And it was this childish kind of like fearful reaction um, that is so similar to the way that climate change was received, um, especially by Americans, by with this doubt and the suspicion you have what was and is received was and is still received, although it's getting much, much better. Um, there is a majority of Americans, a large majority now that feel climate change is the most important issue that we need to deal with in this nation moving forward that is ready for climate change legislation. But when you have billions of dollars flowing from the one industry that climate change legislation is going to kill, and that's the fossil fuel industry. When they're giving billions through lobbyists, through donations to this cadre of politicians that has a, an iron grip on local, state, um, national politics, um, you know, it, it's it's it is a catastrophic problem. Um, you know, I was lucky enough to kind of come up as a journalist and read the science first and then read the newspaper, you know, and then read Facebook posts or whatever. And the science has been clear for 50 years, 60 years beyond that. And when you have thousands of scientists agreeing with 98% consensus on this is the cause of this, this is generally what needs to happen to, to slow it down. Again, I am relieved. Hey, there's a way to mitigate this, like there is a way out. 
Um, but the whole issue, like the whole issue of a world pandemic is so terrifying to a lot of people that they kind of rescind back into their shells, you know, kind of put up a wall, put up a, a fight and just put their head in the sand and try to pretend like it's not happening. I get it. Like, I want to do that. That sounds very comforting. I also want my child to grow up in, in a, a peaceful, safe, and, and you know, climactically stable environment. I'd love for her to ski and see winter. You know, she's three and a half years old, and she's in that generation that is really going to start to see the worst of this catastrophe that, that we have literally created. What do you think it will take and what should be happening to address the kind of, to make sure that this is not in fact the last winter? Uh, I, you know, it's, it's gotten to such a late stage that it is going to take national and international policy change to move things at the speed that they need to be moved to draw back from greenhouse gases as fast as we need to right now, it has to be done on a very wide scale. It sounds strange to say, but recycling your cans is important, but it is not as important right now as going to the polls, voting, and putting smart, climate-savvy people in positions of power that know how to get us out of this jam. You know, people shy away from talking about politics in this country. I don't like talking about politics. I don't even follow them that much. But I do know for this scientific issue that we are up against right now, the most important thing that you can do is to go out and vote and to put people who understand climate change in the position to help us get out of it. That's what needs to happen. Um, there's a group I've, I've worked with for many years now. It's really the only snow advocacy group in the world that focuses on that. It's called Protect Our Winters, started by snowboarder Jeremy Jones. And, and they are just, they're terrific. They do the right things. You know, they're, they're putting people into positions of power that can create um, proper climate change legislation and policy. And, and that's, you know, that's, that's the best we can hope for. So I do suggest folks, you know, at least look them up, read about them, donate to them if you want, but at least read the facts um, on their page and learn about what's, what's happening at that national level. Where does your journey uh, around the world to these frozen places and how threatened they are, where does it leave you feeling right now? Happy to be home. <laughs> okay <laughs> happy that it's cold outside today we don't have a lick of snow but um happy that when you get a text from your wife that says come home you can be yes, home in I'm half an hour i'm usually out in the back it doesn't the rely on dog sleds <laughs> exactly um you know i i'm I, i'm really happy that this issue is in the news right now i'm happy to see there's a big snow drought in Colorado right now, and it's all over the news. It's, it's upsetting that it takes that big of a natural event to get it into the news, but it doesn't matter. It's in the news. People are talking about it. I really think people's hearts are in the right place. And if they can kind of get over that fear and denial and, and just kind of um, accept that this 
world has a very volatile climate. It has been volatile in the past um, from natural causes, and it's volatile now because of human-caused uh, climate change. Um, they both can happen. They both can happen together. They can happen independently. Um, we, we, are, we are very lucky to kind of have come up during this 10,000-year window, and, and I really think we should try to continue it because who doesn't love going uh, skiing in the winter who doesn't love going to our national parks and hiking in the summer walking through the forest and just especially in this nation with just so much wild land like so much wilderness still left um, that is um, for me anyway it's 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 the way that I connect to being alive to having a kid um, to uh, just existing here well, Porter Fox, I want to thank you for joining us on the Vermont Conversation and congrats on your new book. Thanks so much, David. Porter Fox's newest book is The Last Winter, The Scientists, Adventurers, Journeymen, and Mavericks Trying to Save the World. That does it for this week's Vermont Conversation. You can hear this and all programs at vtdigger.org slash vermontconversation. I'm David Goodman. Thanks so much for listening. <music>